0: Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. As you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of a heads up as to where we're going. Uh, we are going to take a break after today in looking at the book of Hebrews. There is quite a stern warning uh, that is coming up for the rest of chapter 5 and a good part of chapter 6. And uh, that would be fitting for us to study, but we're going to wait till after the Christmas season to do that. Because what I want to do next week is talk about Matthew chapter 1, the coming of Christ to save. And then after that, on Christmas Eve, we will look at the coming of Christ to judge as well. And then New Year's Eve, we will look at the coming of Christ to reign. So it'll be a wonderful season for us to look into the Word of God in sort of a topical way in the Advent season. And then we'll return back to Hebrews in our study in the New Year. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, is where we are this afternoon as we look into the Word of God together. Follow with me as I read the passage before us. I'm going to start in verse 1 so that we get the whole whole paragraph. Hebrews 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order. Of Melchizedek, I want you to imagine with me in your mind's eye a man leading his wife and leading his sons and they're hiking through the hills of Judea in southern Israel and they are going to Jerusalem and they're going up to Jerusalem to worship. No doubt this Jewish family is well acquainted with Aaron and the high priesthood. They know and they've been taught about Nadab and Abihu and then Ithamar and Eleazar, the high priests of the book of Leviticus. No doubt they are aware of Abiathar, the high priest, when David entered the tabernacle and ate the consecrated bread in 1 Samuel twenty-six. And no doubt these Jewish people understand Hilkiah, the high priest, who found the book of the law in the temple in the days of King Josiah in 2 Kings 22. And they're all aware of Eliashib, the high priest who helped build and consecrate the walls in Nehemiah's time, Nehemiah chapter 3. They certainly know of Joshua, the high priest, in the days of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Everybody knows of Annas. The father-in-law of Caiaphas, both of which were crooked high priests in the first century, in the days of Christ, they were greedy, they were evil, they were wicked men, but they were high priests who condemned Jesus for blasphemy and sentenced him to die. Even Paul, the apostle Paul, when he was on trial in Jerusalem, stood before Ananias, the high priest, who ordered Paul to be struck on the mouth for his testimony of Christ, according to Acts chapter 23. And as they're walking together in the Judean hills, you can imagine this family together. And at one point, one of the sons says to his dad, Dad, we all know those high priests. We've studied them. I learned about them in the synagogue. I know about them. But, Dad, they weren't perfect. They were sinners. They were sinners. Some of them were even angry with Jesus. And some of them were angry with the preachers of the gospel in the Old Testament time. They had to make atonement for themselves on Yom Kippur, according to our scriptures in Leviticus chapter 16. Dad, what can the high priests really do for us? There's so much talk about all these high priests. Do they really get us? Do they really understand us? Do we really have to come all the way back to the Jerusalem temple again? Do we have to come again? Do we have to come again? And then in the middle of their journey, the father stoops down on his knee and puts his arm around his young son. And the father says, my son, do not fear. Do not fear because you are right about all of those former high priests. But son, listen to me. We come to Jesus. He is our great high priest. He has been made perfect by his work on the cross. And everything that he accomplished is complete and it is finished with him. He is the source of our eternal salvation. Could you imagine how that young boy would be relieved in that moment? Could you imagine how those who would have been listening to that conversation would have the joy and the relief in the hope in this great high priest, Jesus, who really is the final, the complete, the perfect high priest? That's kind of what Hebrews 5 teaches us this afternoon. Hebrews chapter five is going to teach us about the great high priest and how he is compared with, but contrasted to all the former high priests of old. There's a hymn from the 1700s written by Isaac Watts. He was a pastor and also wrote a lot of hymns. He said this, with joy, we meditate the grace of our high priest above. His heart is made of tenderness, and his feelings melt with love. He, in the days of his feeble flesh, he poured out his cries and his tears, and in his measure he feels afresh what all of us, every member, bears. Jesus is the great high priest. He really can relate to us. He really understands what you're going through. He's lived the life that you have lived He is like the former priests, but he is so, so much better than all of them. The point of what I just read in Hebrews 5, verses 1 to 10, is meant to be a comparison. It's meant to be a comparison of Jesus with Aaron and all of the former high priests. But it's not just a comparison, there's also a contrast as well, because Jesus is infinitely better. He is infinitely better. All that Aaron had, Jesus has. And all that Aaron had that qualified him to be a high priest, Jesus has, and infinitely more. Infinitely more. Now, remember last week in verses 1 to 4, remember how we looked at the former priests. Remember that? The former priests had to have a number of qualifications. They had to be a man, they had to be compassionate, and they had to be appointed. That was the outline from last week in Hebrews chapter 5 in verses 1 to 4. But then beginning in verse 5, we learn about the final priest, not just the former ones, but now the final one, who is Jesus Christ. And all that he is, and all that he has, and all that he's done, and all of his infinite worth, and all that he accomplishes for his people. My goal today, church family, is not to give you something perhaps new that you've never heard of before. I want to serve you through the simple exposition of the word of God that will encourage you in the gospel that you know, in the Christ that you believe in, and it will prepare us well to take the Lord's Supper together and worship him. What I want to do as we look into this scripture together in Hebrews 5 verses 7 to 10 is I want you to hear this very simple thesis. Jesus is your final priest and he fully meets all of the requirements. Everything that ever could be needed or required to be a high priest, to be able to make atonement, to be one given by God, to be one who can mediate, one who can bring sinners to God. Jesus has it all. He has it all. Now, what I want to do as we look into these verses in the time that we have is I want to give you seven wonderful features of Jesus. Seven wonderful features, very simple little phrases, boys and girls, you can pull out your pen, you can take your bulletin and you can write down these phrases as well. And you can even quiz mom and dad later tonight if you get all of these seven wonderful features of Christ. Here here they are. Let me just give them to you. As we look at verses seven to ten, we're going to see that Jesus is a praying priest, a praying priest. Number two, he's a godly priest priest. Number three, he's a suffering priest. Number four, he is a complete priest. Number five, he is a saving priest. Number six, he is an eternal priest. And then number seven, he is an appointed priest. Now, I hope to sort of serve you the platter of the glory of Christ. I'm going to repeat all of those as we go on. So if you didn't catch all of them. You'll get him in a little bit, but but I want to serve you the platter of Christ and His beauty and His glory, and all of this is so practical because at the end of chapter four, if you let your eyes skip back to four sixteen, notice how practical all of this is. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you understand what we're looking at today rightly, you. Should be filled with courage, confidence, boldness, prayerfulness, and joy as you rest in Jesus. So, number one, the first wonderful feature of Jesus number one, he is a praying priest. He is a praying priest. Verse seven begins, and this is our text before us. Look at it. In the days of his flesh, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Let's not forget that a cardinal doctrine, a very important doctrine of Christianity that we can never, ever do without, is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You see it right here in verse 7. In the days of his flesh. Boys and girls, is it really that important that we understand that God took on human flesh to save sinners? Is it really that important? Yes, it is. The word of God is so clear, and I'll show you why here in a little bit. Amazingly, the Bible tells us in John 1 verse 18 that the divine one dwells in the bosom of the father, meaning Jesus enjoyed fellowship with, In the bosom of the Father from all of eternity, John 1.18. We also know from John 17 that Jesus enjoyed fellowship and communion with the Father before the world was created. We know in Matthew chapter 1 that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. I should say the body, the body, the human body of Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. We learn in Hebrews 10 and verse 5 that Jesus had a body that was developed and given and fit for him, created and designed by God. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary as a real baby to a real family. We learn from Galatians 4 verse 4 that Jesus was born under the law so that he might live and redeem and save sinners who are totally helpless. Our text tells us in the days of his flesh, remember how important the incarnation is that Jesus can relate to you, that he became a man like you, that he took on human flesh like you, that he was born like you as a little baby and had to learn and grow and develop and grow in his wisdom and knowledge and favor with God and men. Notice in verse 7, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications. I want to tell you about these words in the original Greek. They're really helpful. The first word for prayer is the idea of a need, a need. I am presenting my petitions to the Father. That's the first word for Jesus in the days of his flesh. He offered up those kinds of prayers. But now the second word that is revealed in verse 7 is the word supplication. It's the only time this occurs in all the Bible. This word for supplication is absolute, utter, urgent desperation. You are absolutely at your wit's end. You think, oh, I understand that. No, 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 you don't. This is to be at a wit's end like no one could ever fathom. Meaning, Jesus acknowledging and recognizing that he's going to go to the cross. That he's going to bear the Father's wrath. And that all of the culmination of the redemptive plan is going to take place. Jesus is utterly, absolutely, urgently desperate to his wit's end in praying to God. How did he pray? How did Jesus pray? Verse 7, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying. Loud crying. Uh, Strong cries. And not only were there loud cries, but there were tears, no doubt leading us to the Passion Week. And if we're going to zoom in specifically, no doubt taking us to the Garden of Gethsemane. We read it earlier in Mark chapter 14. When we read in Mark chapter 14 about Jesus at the garden, we read that he was overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. He said to the disciples, My soul is grieved even to the point of death. Matthew tells us that, the parallel. We read in Mark 14, verse 34, that Jesus was so sorrowful, even to the point of overwhelming, to the point of death, to to the place of despair. He sweated drops of blood, Luke chapter 22 tells us. Why? Because he was facing the cup. He knew that in the garden of Gethsemane, at his wit's end, he was praying. He was presenting supplications with loud cries, sweating drops of blood. He knew that he had come to drink the cup of God's wrath. You have a praying priest. You have a praying priest. Jesus facing the wrath of God and knowing that he would go to the cross and that he would suffer and that he would die and that he would take God's judgment, the wrath of God that he had never known before against our sin, like 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that led him to such praying. Christ stood before God, we might say, as the most wicked Of all transgressors, not because of his own sin, but because of our sin. No doubt Psalm 22 verse 1, I think, is in the background here. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus, in absolute despair, at his wit's end, in such grief and pain and turmoil, because he knew that he would face, listen, separation relationally from his father. He knew that he would receive unimaginable death. He knew that he would be the sin bearer. He knew that he would be the wrath absorber. He knew that he would be divinely forsaken by the Father. He would be abandoned by the Father on the cross relationally. He would absolutely quench all hellfire that you and I deserve. And he prayed. Your priest prayed. Is he qualified? to be your savior, to be my savior? I mean, does he, does he relate to us? I, I mean, is he like Aaron and the priests of old who, who were men, taken from among men to be appointed and to be compassionate? I mean, can Jesus relate? Answer, yes, yes. One writer was commenting on Gethsemane. Let me just give you some thoughts to think about when we reflect on Gethsemane and the narrative of Jesus Praying and crying and presenting loud supplications to God. What was so horrendous about Gethsemane? It was the overwhelming horror that Jesus faced. It was the complete anguish that he faced. It was the fullness of the intensity of God's wrath that he faced. He knew that he would submit himself in the place of sinners. Jesus faced the fierceness of God's wrath, the incomparable experience of divine judgment, the horror of eternal torment, and all extreme anguish, not even for his own sin. I mean, you and I deserve the second death. And he presented such supplications at his wits' end because he took the second death so you will never need to experience it. One writer was commenting on Gethsemane and said, This is the absolute undoing of a soul. That's what Jesus faced. He's praying. He's facing the fierceness of God's wrath. He endured my hell and your hell, if you're a believer here today, so that you could be set free to enter into his heaven. Which, by the way, what a mighty and a strong savior he is. To be able to take it and bear it and accomplish that. And yet at the same time, let's flip the coin What, what a terror that weak unbelievers will face the dreadful terror of God's justice. The same terror that made God himself tremble. Sinners will face it in hell if they remain in their unbelief. Your priest in his flesh, he prayed, he prayed, he prayed with powerful prevailing prayers. And look in verse seven again, look at Hebrews five, seven in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to God. He is the one able to save him from death. Don't read that and think, oh man, Jesus really wanted to not go to the cross. That's not the point of the verse. He knew that he had come for the cross. Literally in the Greek, he prayed to the father who was able to save him through death, meaning it's a prayer for the resurrection. It's a prayer for the resurrection. I want to be saved out of death's grip. I want to be assured of the resurrection. He was praying to God who was able to rescue him through death and raise him back to life. And praise God, the Father heard and answered that prayer in the resurrection of Christ. Church family, hear this afresh. Your priest is a praying priest. Put it this way. He can empathize with you in everything you ever go through. You can't empathize with him, but he can with you in everything you ever go through. What a priest that you have. He is a praying priest. But in your notes, let me give you a second one. we got to get through seven here, so I need to pick up the pace. Number two, he is not only a praying priest. Number two, he is a godly priest. He is a godly priest. Because verse seven tells us that he, he prayed to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his Piety. The word piety means submission. It means submission. Get this. When Jesus was in the garden, and when Jesus was fearful. His fear led and motivated him to prayer. We need that as well. When we are fearful, when we are, when we are worried, when we are unsure, we need to be motivated to prayer. Submission is not easy. Submission isn't, it wasn't easy for Jesus to submit. But it is needed when you don't want to do something or when you don't want to do something a particular way. Submission is this. It is a willful, humble, recognizing of the God-given authority over you. Jesus and his prayers were heard because of his godly submission. Was going to the cross easy? No. But he willfully submitted. He humbly recognized the Father's authority over him, and he cheerfully, he willingly, with all of his heart, he obeyed. It's the way that we all are called to submit to God in James 4, verse 7 submit to God. It's the way that wives are to submit to their husbands in Ephesians 5, to 24. It's the way that we all are to submit to our pastor elders, according to Hebrews 13 and verse 17. It is the way that Christ submitted to the Father. It's almost like this. It's like a child. Boys and girls, maybe you you could hear this and put this into practice. It's like a boy and girl who are talking with their parents and the little child says, you know, I don't feel like sharing my toys right now. I don't feel like doing that but I know that this is what God wants me to do. I know it's what God wants me to do, so I will choose to obey with a happy heart. Is it hard? Sure. Might you not want to do it? Sure. But biblical submission is, with all of your heart, placing yourself under the God-given authority in your life. And Jesus prayed, and he offered up such prayers and petitions with tears and loud cries to God, who was able to save him from death's grip. And Jesus was heard because of his submission. What a great priest you and I have. He is our champion and our example. Not only is he, number one, your praying priest, Number two, not only is he your godly priest, we might say that Jesus did what was insurmountably difficult, and he did it from the heart. He did it from the heart. He is a godly priest. Number three, he is a suffering priest. He is a suffering priest. And I want you to look at verse 8 with me. Although he was a son, going back to verse 5, quoting from Psalm 2, Jesus learned obedience from the things that he suffered. We talk a lot about discipleship around here, don't we? We talk about the importance of one believer helping another believer follow Jesus. We talk about how discipleship is the growth process that God works in all of our lives as we are encouraging one another in the word of God. We we understand that. We get that. The Bible teaches that. Christ Fellowship wants to be committed to that. Did you know the foremost disciple, the foremost learner was Jesus? In Isaiah chapter 50, Let me just read a couple of verses here in verse 4, Isaiah 50, speaking of Jesus. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples so that I might know how to sustain the weary one with the word. This is Jesus speaking. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear. I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Do you know what Isaiah 50 is teaching, verses 4 and following? It's teaching that morning by morning in the life of Jesus, he each day was like a disciple learning from his father in the study of the word he was a suffering priest who had to learn who had to be discipled just like us and verse 8 back to hebrews 5 tells us although jesus was a son he learned obedience from what he suffered isn't that amazing he learned obedience It's not because he was foolish. That's not the point of the verse. He learned obedience because he had not experienced it before. We could talk about a pianist. If you want to be a piano player, you you could watch YouTube videos all day long about playing piano. But if you don't actually sit behind the piano and get to work, you're not going to learn the art of playing piano. A soldier... He could read books about going to war. He could read books about all the military and all that is required. But he's got he's to actually get up and go into battle if he's going to win victories. He's got to actually experience it and learn it by experience. That's what Jesus did. Verse 8, he learned obedience. He experienced obedience through his sufferings. Boys and girls, Jesus can relate to you because Luke 2 says that he went home and was submissive and obedient to Mary and Joseph. Here's the perfect man, Jesus, submitting to an imperfect mother and father. Jesus submitted himself to them. John 12 tells us that Jesus submitted himself to the Father. Isaiah 50 tells us that he obeyed and submitted as a disciple to the Father. Jesus can relate because he learned obedience and he learned obedience from his sufferings. He is a suffering priest. The school of suffering is often one of the greatest and foremost ways that God grows his disciples. And if you're going through that school of suffering, look to Jesus, because he's been there. Look to Jesus because he's been there. Not only is Jesus in these amazing descriptions, in these wonderful features, is he a praying priest? Is he a godly priest? Is he a suffering priest? But let me give you number four now if you're taking notes. Number four, he is a complete priest. He is a complete priest. Now, if I've lost you, come back to me. Because the beginning of verse 9 is astonishing. Verse 9 says this and having been made perfect. One of the English translations says, after he finished the work. It's the same word as John 19, verse 30. It is finished. It's the same idea in verse 9. When Jesus came to the point when it is fully accomplished, when he completed the work, when he reached the goal, when he achieved and opened salvation's door to lost sinners, when he did all of that, he became to all who obey him the source of eternal salvation. What is Hebrews teaching right here? The same thing that you read in John chapter 19 on the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. All of the work of paying the full debt, the full price for sinners, for their salvation, it's finished. Hebrews is saying the same thing in chapter 5 verse 9, having been made perfect. Jesus never made a sacrifice for himself. He didn't sin. He didn't need to do that. He didn't have to repeat the sacrifice over and over again like all the other high priests of old. They did that, but Jesus did not need to. His was final. Ponder this. Look at it again in verse 9. Having been made perfect. You might even rightly think of it in your translation. After Jesus said, it is finished. Jesus was not spared one heavy stroke of divine discipline. Not one. There was not one divine stroke from the Father that was missed. He took it all. We are spared divine wrath, but Jesus wasn't. We have never gone this deep in suffering, in finishing this work of God. We could never even begin to do it. But Jesus did. He did when he said, it is finished. So I want you to see that little phrase in the beginning of verse 9, having been made perfect. Your Savior is a complete priest because he really said, "It's, it's finished. The work is done. The payment has been offered. The debt has been paid. Everything that sinners could ever need to be reconciled to God, Jesus has done it and paid 100% of it. He is a complete priest. Number five, and this is sort of just following the, 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 the last point. If he's a complete priest, now number five, he's a saving priest. He is a saving priest. Because look in your Bible at verse 9. Having been made perfect, he became to all who obey him the source of eternal salvation. You remember these words from the hymn that we love? Remember, before the throne of God above. Remember that verse when it says, when Satan tempts me to despair. And he tells me of the guilt within upward. I look and I see him there who made an end to all of my sin because the sinless savior died. My sinful soul is counted free for God. The just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Verse nine teaches That because of this finished work of Jesus, he became to all those who obey him the source. I love that word source. When I was on the Catholic University this week, I preached this verse. Jesus is the source of your salvation. Not you, not your baptism, not your priest, not your rosary, not your good effort. Jesus is the source. That word for source means originator. It means that He is the giver. It means that every blessing that you could ever, ever, ever receive in life, in salvation, and for eternity, it comes through Christ. I think of it like this. You go to your kitchen and you turn on your kitchen faucet, the sink, and all just comes out of that sink when you're filling up cups. Well, think of it like, like Christ. He is the faucet from which all the blessings of your salvation flow from him. Your justification, you get that blessing from him. All of the effectual calling and the sanctification and your glorification and your union with Christ and the preservation that you have for life and all for eternity, it all comes through Christ. Not you, not me, but him. He is the source of all blessings. Ponder that for a sec. Ponder that, that Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. One Puritan was writing on this, and he was commenting on the gospel from these verses, and he said, the death of Jesus was a death that justice required. And at the sight of the justice of God When Jesus died, it was so calmed when Jesus died that the sharp revenging sword dropped out of God's hand. Ponder that for a sec. Justice required our death. But when Jesus died and he offered himself and he is the source of eternal salvation, the sword of God's wrath dropped out of his hand. And it doesn't come upon you. Because it fell upon him. This Christ, yes, this Christ far surpasses Aaron and all the former priests hold. This priest is the one who is the source of our eternal salvation. I can't do it. You can't do it. Nothing we could ever do could accomplish it. But Jesus is, verse 9, the source of eternal salvation. But maybe you read and you're looking at verse 9 and you're waiting for me to get to that point. Yet to those who obey him, Does that mean that I'm I'm saved because I obey Jesus? No, it doesn't mean that. The book of Hebrews teaches what the book of James teaches. The book of Hebrews teaches what James teaches, what Jesus taught. And that is, if you have saving faith in Jesus, it will be an obedient faith. A true faith that saves is always going to be a true faith that obeys. Now, hear hear me, hear me. Not perfect. Nobody does that perfect. We can't do that perfect. But Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word and do it. James 2 says, faith without works is dead. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ for good works. So the book of Hebrews is not teaching, well, Jesus is your savior if you obey him. That's not the point of the text. But the point of the text is, if you really are going to believe in him, you're going to manifest it in your life of obeying him. A true saving faith is an obedient faith. It protects us from that easy believism mentality that doesn't save. That Jesus can be your savior and sort of get you out of hell, but you don't want him to be your Lord. You don't live for him. You don't trust in him. You don't submit to him. You don't take up your cross and follow him. The Bible knows no salvation like that. Rather, a true saving faith is where you're abiding in Christ and you're bearing much fruit and proving, John 15 says, to be his disciple. So he is the saving priest, the source of our salvation. Number six, if you're taking notes, let me give you just two more quickly. Number six, he is, Jesus is an eternal priest. He is an eternal priest. Verse nine, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Listen to Hebrews 7.25, Jesus saves forever those who draw near to God through him Jesus said in the bread of life sermon John 6 verse 58 whoever eats of this bread will live forever Hebrews 9 verse 12 says that Jesus obtained eternal redemption aren't you thankful that it's eternal (laughs) that means he carries his sheep all the way to heaven Okay, let me illustrate it like this. Think of it, if you're, if you're lost at sea, okay, if you were out at sea one day and you had your own boat and you got lost and your GPS froze that you had no cell reception and you didn't know where you were and you didn't know which way to go and you were completely lost, totally turned around, your compass was messed up, and you were just completely lost. Imagine after a few days of you being fearful and lost, someone, a rescue boat, comes and they find you. And you shout to the other boat, oh, captain, do you know where we are? And do you know how to get back? Do you know the port? Do you know how to battle the waves? Do you know how to weather the storm? Do you have the right pathway for us to get all the way back to shore? If that captain says, oh, yes. I've gone through these waters many times. I know them so well. Yes, just follow me. Oh, you'd feel so safe in his hands. You'd be so relieved that someone could guide you all the way back to shore. Well, such is the qualification of Christ to be your captain and to be your savior, to be your pilot, to bring you all the way to heaven's shore. He guarantees your eternal salvation. Without him, you're lost. Without him, you'll never make your way to heaven's shore. But with this captain and with this pilot, you will make it safely because he will carry you all the way to heaven's shore. And it is an eternal salvation in that it doesn't lose value. It doesn't lose worth. It doesn't lose power. It doesn't lose beauty. This great high priest is an eternal priest who carries you all the way to glory. Not only is he, number six, an eternal priest. Let me give you number seven, just finally and quickly. Number seven, he is an appointed priest. And this was the whole argument earlier in chapter five that Aaron had to be appointed and all of his sons had to be appointed by God. They had to be born in the right family to be a high priest. You and I couldn't do it. Verse 10. Jesus is designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Much more about this character in Hebrews chapter 7, but... Quickly, Melchizedek is mentioned in Genesis 14. He was a king priest who was a man who lived in the time of Abraham, 2000 BC. His ancestry is totally unknown. That's why the text says without father and without mother totally unknown. His lineage is not known. He was the king of Salem, meaning the king of Jerusalem. He was a priest of the true God. There was this priest that God had ordained way back in Genesis 14, and he was a picture of another priest to come who would be of a whole new order, of a whole new design, of a whole new covenant. We'll get there in Hebrews 8. A new covenant. Melchizedek was a king. His priesthood was perpetual. His is better and lasting. Jesus is far better than Aaron. He is far better than all the priests of old because Jesus is of that order of Melchizedek. Jesus comes with a new appointment, a new covenant, a full forgiveness, all divine love. The forever salvation is found in this forever priest. Much more on that in chapter 7. We'll get to that here in a few weeks. So let's pause all of that for a sec. And say, okay, I get the point, right? I get the point. These seven characteristics of a glorious priest, I understand who he is. I see the comparison with the former priests and how he's better. I understand that. But what's the point of all of it? What does that mean for us? I want to give you some really practical takeaways. And I want you to get this because I'm fearful And the author of Hebrews is fearful. That's why he follows this with a warning. I'm fearful that there are some who will nod and say, I get it. But this won't change your life. To be a hearer of the word, but not a doer, is to be deceived, James 1 says. So what's the point of all of this? I mean, why all the talk about the high priest? Why the talk about Jesus as the great high priest? Well, I want to give you some really simple takeaways. Number one, if you get this, it will guard you from doubting your salvation. If you understand Hebrews 5, you don't need to doubt your salvation. Because your salvation rests in the eternal priest. Your salvation is firmly accomplished by Jesus and guarded in Jesus. Let me give you a second takeaway. If you understand this passage, it will guard you from overcomfort. What does that mean, overcomfort? From being too comfortable in yourself. Look, we are swimming in a culture of autonomy and independence. I don't need help. I got this. I got money. I got my house. I got my health. I got my family. I got my job. I got my 401k. I'm okay. I can go to church when I need to. I can read the Bible when I need to. I can all the things... But understanding that Jesus is our great high priest and how he prayed and how he is a complete priest and he said it is finished and he carries us all the way to heaven's shore, it guards us, it protects us from overcomfort in ourselves. Maybe to say that simply, it gives you humility because you and I can't achieve and accomplish this on our own. We need Christ. Third, if we understand Hebrews 5, here's a third takeaway. It guards us from backsliding and lukewarmness. How, how, do we, how do we guard from backsliding, right? I mean, as a, as a seminary guy, right? I spent years studying the Bible and it can be hard for it to stay fresh and devotional. How do you guard from backsliding and in a church where we're taught the word of God and we get sound doctrine? How do we guard against lukewarmness? And the answer is beholding Christ in his beauty from passages like this. And being in awe of who he is and what he's done. Let me give you another takeaway. It guards us from prayerlessness. If you understand this passage, it will guard you from prayerlessness. Why? Because your Savior prayed and he's still praying for you. He prayed in the garden, taking the cup for you, and he's bringing your name before the Father as he intercedes for you right now now he prays for you and when we understand our great high priest and how in his humanity he prayed and offered supplications with tears and loud cries if he prayed in his moments of desperation we can pray as well and then finally another takeaway if we understand the priesthood of christ the fifth takeaway, it guards us from sin. Jesus is better. He's better than all the promises that sin in their lives tell you that will satisfy you. Understanding the priesthood of Christ and the joy of Christ and the salvation of Christ and the heavenly place where we are headed, all of this guards us from sin as we look to Christ, our great high priest. This is so important. This is so important. And even just briefly before I draw this to a close for the Lord's Supper, I'm reminded of what Jerry Bridges said in his book on the practice of godliness. He said, Christian, Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God. He died to reconcile us to a holy God who was alienated from us because of our sin. Jesus died to ransom us from the penalty of sin, from the punishment of everlasting destruction and being shut out from the presence of the Lord. And then Bridges goes on to say he died so that we, the just objects of his wrath, would be by his grace heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ and objects of his love. This is why Jesus came. He came, yes, like the former priests of old, but he is far better. He came to do what no priest of old could ever do. And he came to do what you and I could never do. He came to give us a perfect salvation. May we rest in him. May we love him. May we look to him. And may we celebrate him together. Amen.